on Before the Bestseller, we talk with our favorite authors about the books they wrote and the stories behind how those books made it big. I'm your host, Alex Straffy, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Mike Rucker is a behavioral scientist, organizational psychologist, and a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association, who has been academically published in the International Journal of Workplace Health Management and Nutrition Research. His ideas about fun and health have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Vox, Psychology Today, Outside Magazine, Thrive Global, Fast Company, and the Telegraph, and the list goes on. He currently serves as the senior as a senior leader at Active Wellness, and he is our guest today because who doesn't need a little more fun in their life? Uh, he's a, not just a successful successful author, but also a great behavioral scientist. Because one of the issues that I've come across is this constant search for happiness. And Mike is one of the first self help authors that I've actually seen. In the book, he calls out, hey, if you have a mental disorder, if you have depression, like this probably isn't going to fix it, which is the first one of the first realistic uh, and all encompassing approaches to a self-help book that I've seen. So I was very excited to chat with him about his inclusion of that within the fun habit and then also just talking about what the fun habit is, because my idol in life is Richard Branson and that guy looks like he's having fun. So welcome, Mike Rucker. Mike, it's such a pleasure to, to chat with you about The Fun Habit. This is, from what I understand, a COVID book that has started to really grow some legs, which is my favorite sign of a, a longtime bestseller. So I appreciate you coming on to talk about The Fun Habit. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. First question, everyone gets it, a childhood story that made you who you are today. Wow, that's interesting. There are a few. I think I talk about it in the book. I think what made me who I am today is certainly getting emancipated from my parents. I mean, we're going deep really quick. Um, but, uh, you know, I've always been someone who's outwardly respected and wanted autonomy. And uh, that was incongruent with family life. So, um, yeah, essentially divorcing my parents at 17 was something that really made me who I am. You know, we've since mended that bridge, but I think you know, for both parties, it was good at the time. Um, but essentially, you know, it is divorcing your parents. So it, it, you know, created some fissures that needed healing over time. But now, I think, you know, having responsibility myself at such a young age, having to make my own income, but then also, you know, understand sort of the consensus reality of any given time, um, you know, adulthood at, at such a young age just kind of led to me respecting you know, what people are going through um, and understanding that sometimes we don't know all of the pieces. And so we should approach every situation with empathy. Um, but that also, we generally have more agency and autonomy over our situation than we, um, you know, we might believe. Um, and so certainly has helped me avoid things like victimhood and, and, and things of those nature. I think that empathy seems to be part of what makes you such a great uh, social scientist. Uh, oh, I appreciate that. You understand uh, so many different views. Um, let's talk about the fun habit. What is the fun habit? So the fun habit is a way of looking at time poverty, essentially, right? And so uh, in a nutshell, um, the impetus of the book was stumbling on the fact that in the Western world, especially in individualistic societies like the U.S., 
the way we've been led to think about happiness, kind of the good vibes only tribe has really become problematic. And so that if we always fixate on happiness being sort of out there um, and we're always chasing it, we now know that it leads people to ruminate on the fact that they're not happy or they don't, you know, they aren't where they want to be. And sort of for folks that are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, it's sort of like CBT in reverse, right? You're now ruminating all the time on, oh, you know, things like FOMO, right? As simple as that. Like, I wish I was doing what my friends are doing or, you know, I'll get to happiness one day and then I'll celebrate then, right? Instead of really enjoying the moment and being joyful with the things that are present in your day, even if you are still A-type and striving. And so... One of the researchers that I cite in the book, I really like her research, but there's certainly a, a host of others, is Dr. Iris Mouse out of University of California, Berkeley, who's done a lot of big quantitative studies that have looked at folks that have this sort of overly concern for happiness. So not necessarily valuing happiness, like wanting people to thrive and be happy and, and, and wanting to be happy is not necessarily problematic, but for folks that really organize their lives around like, you know, I've got to do better and just always kind of chasing the next thing. They're some of the most unhappy people. And ironically, you know, especially because not only did I like positive psychology or I have for quite some time over two decades now, I also kind of fell into the quantified self movement when I was in San Francisco. So I was one of those guys, like literally plotting my days on a spreadsheet, you know, looking for correlations, like what days made me happy, what, you know, what were the things that kind of led to malaise? And then, you know, part of my story is in 2016, 2017, I had a host of things, bad things happen, which are going to happen to anybody, right? I meant not necessarily the bad things that happened to me, but we're all going to get slings and arrows, right? And so if you're always kind of trying to solve for happy and these naturally, you know, these big changes in your life happen and you don't have the emotional flexibility to navigate them, um, it, it can lead to big pits of despair that are, are hard to uh, get out of. And so, okay, that's all great, right? I haven't answered your question yet. I, like I identified that as a problem. And so I wanted to find a solution. And so to answer your question, the fun habit kind of was the best available tools to do that that we know of. And it's essentially an act of mindfulness. It's looking at how you spend your time realizing that you have a lot more autonomy and agency over that time than you think by either approaching the things that you have to do differently or just realizing that you're probably spending a lot of time sort of mindlessly and you know you think that you're time poor but really you have you know more uh, control over your leisure than you think and just making better choices and it, it it's a one two punch that you know at face value seems fairly easy but um, you know, just not enough of us do it. And that is that once you start to enjoy your time, so you actively participate in your leisure, ironically, you have more vigor and vitality to attack your work. And so a lot of folks are like, oh, I'm just too busy and too tired. You know, I, the last thing I want to do is like think about going to a comedy show, you know, on a Wednesday night. And yet, and, and the big scientific principle here is called the hedonic flexibility principle. We know the folks that are deliberate about that. And so especially for busy folks like here in the US, ones that deliberately schedule time with friends and activities for enjoyment on their calendar, ironically, are some of the most productive people. But it takes time, right? It's sort of like, I saw this interesting metaphor that, you know, life's always moving forward. It's just, you know, we can decide how 
much pressure we want to put on the gas pedal, right? And just like an engine, if you're always redlining, eventually you're going to break down. And that's why we're seeing record levels of burnout across all vocations, you know, in, in Northern countries. And so um, figuring out what is that balance. So, you know, even if you work hard, how do you rest hard as well? You know, the old adage was, right, you know, work hard, play hard. Well, I think it's really three things like let's work hard, play hard, and then, you know, also self-care hard. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I had to mute my mic there because the San Diego Navy is always flying over. So my apologies uh, for Oh, uh, no worries. My best friend uh, used to uh, fly out of Miramar. So I know it yep. well. We would uh, hang out on Garnett and listen oh, yeah. to the same sounds. A lot to unpack there. So <laughs> I agree in the sense that, you know, it's it's incredibly difficult because you know, yeah, it's it's like uh, just the way, you know, capitalism is, you know, it's just a need to constantly be kind of pushing yourself. And, you know, there's there's a lot of people that pull in, fall into the, you know, the self-pity and then turn to self-help books, right? And I last year read an absurd amount of self-help books and found myself in the deepest depression. And I think it's it's funny because it is this juxtaposition is those who chase happiness seem to go a level uh they are so self-aware of themselves that they're not living instead they're just analyzing their life which just makes them feel worse and self-help books in general seem to also assume that there is something wrong with our it it speaks whoever's picking up that book to read about that topic is uh is essentially that book is saying you're doing something wrong when not everyone is doing something wrong and so i did actually and this falls into a, a no more a larger idea here which is some people just have depression and fun isn't going to get them out of that depression and you actually address that in the book because when i first started reading it i was actually i started off being very you know okay here's another self-help book try to be open-minded but it was the first self-help book that i've actually seen someone say hey if you're depressed this isn't for you (laughs) you need help which i thought was a phenomenal addition to the book Um, i appreciate that obviously a few things uh, to unpack there but yeah, first of all, you know, how do you digest self-help and use it to actually better yourself instead of making yourself feel worse? Yeah, I think there's uh, similar to the uh, sentiment that you shared. I think there's a few things to unpack there, right? So I certainly think that any book, and I'm going to just say good books, right, um, are a tool in the toolkit. So, you know, they're going to resonate with some. Susan Cain certainly has, I think, um, an interesting counterpoint to the fun habit um uh you know with regards to folks that operate in a through the lens of melancholy and how that can be quite fulfilling and maybe your modus operandi where they're going to look at my book which is kind of how do you bias your life towards fun and delight and be like that's not for me and that that's perfectly okay another point is this toxic positivity element of like my way or the highway right um i just watched a fascinating documentary about Berkham. And I think, you know, that speaks to your point, right? Here is someone that was preying on the vulnerable, all of these, you know, uh, folks that had been attracted to yoga because they wanted to fix something. And he used that to make them feel smaller at times and, and victimize a lot of folks, even though ultimately his work did some good to some people, right? So I think that kind of speaks um, to that. One idea that I've been really fascinated with, and I think it's starting to manifest as my second book, is to your point, why are we always looking at the self instead of the things that can set us up for success? So I was fortunate enough to present the book at the International Positive Psychology Association, which was a fun victory lap for me since that's kind of how all of this started, right? 
And there was a fascinating keynote on, um, and bear with me, because sometimes these academic keynotes, you know, to lay people are like, dude, really? <laughs> you spent a whole hour? But in academia, we look at the construct of words and like dissect them because that's important for scientific study, right? And so this was a lecture about <laughs> looking at the construct of thriving versus flourishing. And so what you're describing are all of these books on how do you thought, you know, sort of thrive despite your consequences, or excuse me, your circumstances, I meant to say. And I think that's interesting, right? Like we have Duckworth's book about grit, right? We have, you know, all of these books about building resilience. Like how can you survive in this shitty world? Well, there's two things there, right? One, yeah, it's your fault. It's sort of the implicit frame, right? Which is, you know, unfortunate. But then the other is you're framing the world is not supportive, right? You're going to succeed despite your circumstances. Everything is a struggle or even the hustle, right? Instead of looking, how can we create the scaffolding, um, you know, so that people can succeed despite their circumstances, you know, maybe if they do need an SSRI or, you know, uh, they come from a place uh, you know, without privilege, how can we create a rising tide where everyone has the ability to succeed despite, you know, them having to put in so much additional effort? And I'd really like to see more focus on that. You know, in my day job where we're looking at health, we call this health equity, right? Like how do we do something as simple as, and and I'll get back on the rails, but I think this is important to your point, right? Like, you know, why is it that in poorer neighborhoods, the only way to get food is the corner store and vegetables are like 3x the price, you know, because there's no way to scale that. And so that's kind of a broader view, but I think at a micro view to answer your question, it is that yes, there are too many books that say, you know, despite the fact that the world sucks, you know, we're going to give you the tools to succeed. And what that means is that you need to 10x your output. You need to, you know, even though we know all the success of, um, you know, having good social bonds through books like Blue Zone and others, you know, uh, you know, forget your friends, just, you know, make sure that you're answering emails on the toilet. And so, yes, that increases productivity for a certain amount of time. And it's very episodic. And you might read a book like that and succeed for four months. And then ultimately, because that type of effort's insidious, six months down the line, you'll wonder, why the hell do I feel so crappy? And then you're not productive at all, which is the unfortunate consequence, right? You're left in a worse place. Uh, so going back to fun being the one of the potential tools in the toolkit here, um, can you have fun trying to have fun? Uh, or, uh, I mean, doesn't it just become another thing we stress about? So that's funny that you say that. I think it depends on your appetite for curiosity. So certainly, and I find this very interesting for me because I've been introduced to so many folks in the play world, right? Amazing folks like Gary Ware and, and Jeff Harry and Christian Anderson, um, Kirsten Anderson rather. and like these are folks that love play, right? And I think there's an attraction to that if you have that taste for improv, um, you know, for flexing your curiosity. But certainly that's not something that everyone has an appetite for. And so I found myself attracted to those people, but not necessarily wanting to do those things. That said, I think despite your appetite for that kind of enjoyment, 
you know, because again, I talk about it in the book, right? What's pleasurable for one is certainly not pleasurable for the other, right? A lot of it comes down to arousal. I often like using my wife as the counterpoint. You know, I love rock concerts and I do like exploring, um, but she likes finding that curiosity, engaging in a good book with no one around her just so that, you know, she can bring things down. Both are equal, equally as fun, you know, by definition, because we both derive a lot of pleasure from those activities. So, can you have fun engaging in searching fun? Absolutely. I think for folks that don't necessarily want to join an improv class, it's figure out like how do you sort of taste life, right? How do you create variety in a way that does make sense for you? If you only like to read books, then maybe it's trying, you know, books outside of your genre. For my daughter and I right now, currently it's taking uh, cooking classes. And sometimes those turn out to be awful experiences because we hate the food or it was a little outside our skill level, but because we enjoy each other's company and we don't mind in that context making mistakes or if the outcome ultimately isn't what we uh, wanted it to be going into it, we can kind of still laugh and chalk it up to like, you know, part of the uh, in- enjoying the process. Yeah. Uh, trying, so trying other things, trying things within your scope that are outside of your scope, essentially. Um, when it comes back to, uh, and this whole idea got me thinking about Richard Branson, because to me, he is someone who has lived a life of the fun habit. And oftentimes, you know, my girlfriend or my friends, you know, they call me a child because of like, you know, I will love to just do like, you know, like if I want to go climb a tree, like I, you know, I want to climb, like, I love climbing trees, you know, and, and maybe that's not the safest thing to do, uh, as you start to weigh a bit more. But I loved uh, quoting from the book you wrote, if you find yourself pushing back against the idea of having more fun, fearful that dialing up enjoyment runs the risk of rampant self-indulgence or escapism, then I ask you to evaluate how this reaction might speak to your own current worldview on renewal. And yeah, so why why does fun, as we get older, why do we uh, expect that our lives should become less fun? And why do we almost feel guilty for engaging in activities that are fun? Yeah, so there are a whole host of headwinds, right? So we could kind of go down the bullet list, but the strongest headwind seems to be this frame that we have been embedded with as we grow up, that time somehow equates to money, right? And so, you know, you brought up capitalism. Another big part of it, even despite capitalism, is just meritocracy. I I tend to think that meritocracy has more of a weight than, you know, capitalism, um, but this idea that we always need to strive to kind of get that next trophy or, you know, impress our next client or our next boss means that if somehow we're spinning down and spending time on ourselves, even though we know that's extremely important, that somehow we're giving away worth, right? And so whether that's rooted in the Puritan worth ethic that has ripples, you know, that kind of dictate everything that we do to just these simple mental frames, again, you know, time is money. Um, there certainly seems to be this drag that if somehow we're spending ourselves in a way that isn't leading to productivity, that it's not leading to betterment. But we we know fundamentally now through years and years of empirical research, that's simply not true. And so where my hope lies um, is that we had a similar coming um, uh, of awareness with sleep, right, in the 90s. If you recall you know, and maybe you followed the same folks. I believe I'm a little bit older than you, but like, you know, I was a big zealot of uh, Gary V and, and, and his brethren. 
And so I, I literally kept the post. I was going to take it down, but I kept it up. So when I first started my blog over 15 years ago, um, I wrote something, you know, about how I was so excited. You know, Gary Vee said, uh, you know, once you put the kids to bed, make sure you don't watch Lost because that's, you know, where winners live, right? And like, what an asinine statement. He's learned along the way too, right? He's totally walked it back. He now has a chief happiness, excuse me, a chief happiness officer. And certainly his rhetoric is completely different. But those, you know, rooted ideals, they take long to unroot, right? And so I think we're still in the process of that. But where I was going with sleep is, you know, we used to say don't sleep. And now we know fundamentally because of, you know, podcasts like Huberman's and just general science that not having sleep means that you're not going to be productive. It's just an asinine recommendation to get into a sleep deficit. And we're finding the same about a fun deficit or leisure deficit, you know, as it's more generally described. And so if you're not taking time off the table to sort of spin down your brain, you know, if you're working from the second your head uh, lifts the pillow till, till you go down, eventually you're going to burn out. That's just a simple fact. So prioritizing leisure and pleasure, however that looks for you, is extremely important if you want to be a productive person. Yeah. And to apply this to my own life, uh, after reading the book a few nights ago, my uh, a couple of friends who live in uh, nearby said, hey, let's play Catan tonight, which I, I'm a big board gamer. I love board games. Catan's a great game. And, you know, I was supposed to answer a few more emails. And I said, I'm going to be more productive playing Catan because it's going to refresh me for, for when I have to get back to work. So um, yeah, I'm already making those, you know, prioritizing, I think a little bit better, uh, thanks to the book. I have a lot more questions I want to ask you about, uh, doom surfing or yielding to nothing, uh, or to hard fun. But unfortunately, uh, this has been such an interesting, uh, conversation that the past 30 minutes have just flown by. So, uh, we do, uh, we've used up a, a bit of your time for this, uh, for this chat. And I know luckily enough, you've been kind enough to agree to come back on to talk about the actual marketing for the book. For those of you, those that are listening that, are you know uh, social commentators or writing their own books uh, can market their own books. I really appreciate you coming on. For those of uh, for those who've listened to this and they're like, I want to have a little more fun in my life. Uh, that sounds like a good thing to optimize for. What's the best place for them to get the fun habit? So the book's out now. So wherever you enjoy purchasing your book, I know your audience is authors. So hopefully you support your local bookstore. But um, obviously it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you enjoy purchasing your books. And if you're just more generally interested in the science of fun, I write about it at my website at michaelrucker.com. And then a lot of lay media, which is all available in my uh, news section there on the website. Awesome. Anything else you want to leave listeners with about fun? I just think, you know, we've made a good argument, right, that it is important. So I think if you find yourself what we call time poor, where you're wondering why there isn't more enjoyment in your life, starting off with a simple time audit, just being mindful. You know, there's only 168 hours in a week. And just that exercise of kind of going through a week and realizing where there might be opportunities for low-hanging fruit to sort of change what you're doing. You know, you brought up doom scrolling. That's certainly something that a lot of us uh, fall victim to. Um, paying attention to that, whether that's just keeping a simple spreadsheet, you know, to sort of be mindful. I have something called the play model that's that's available for free. You just Google Rucker play model and it'll come right up. And, you know, it's an easy way to categorize how you're spending your time in four different categories. 
Um, or just simply look at the, you know, the health section of your phone. And that could be a great place to start, right? And maybe it's not social media. Maybe it's like, wait, I'm spending 11 hours in Slack. Like, is that the best use of, you know, uh, one sixteenth of your week? And so it allows you to make better choices when you, you know, approach your time mindfully like that. And it, it's really episodic. You really only need to spend a week and that bears fruit for a long time because you start to make better choices and then you can create this upward spiral. It, it's not rocket science. Yeah. One of the ones, uh, doom surfing that you mentioned, the, uh, I read BBC news all the time and it's mm-hmm. like, here's what's wrong with the world. Here's what's blowing up today. Uh, and I went and put a time limit. Luckily, uh, Apple now allows you to put time limits on even websites that you go to. So I've now set that like a two minute time limit. Cause that's all I need a day. Uh, so anyway, you've already influenced my life. I appreciate your time, Michael. Oh, thank and you so much, Alex. To, that's yeah, great to hear. Having you back on. So, okay. Thank you for listening. I know there's many other things you could have been doing during this time, and I hope you found this episode incredibly useful for you and your journey. And if you did, or if you have any feedback, I would love to hear that in a review on Apple. That would be fantastic or anywhere else that you are listening to this show. So thank you. And if you're the type of listener that is also an author or looking to be an author soon, feel free to email me at alex at advancedamazonads.com. That's alex at advancedamazonads.com. And I'll add you to our weekly newsletter where I send out all of the best marketing tips I've ever heard from authors that I've had on this show and many of the authors that we work with. So I look forward to hearing from you if that's something you'd find useful. And either way, I look forward to having you back for our next episode.